This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I'll sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror writer, reviewer, and podcaster. You can find her written work at Ghouls Magazine and Rue Morgue, amongst many other platforms. She's the co-host of both the Losers Club podcast and the outstanding Psychoanalysis of Horror Therapy podcast. She's also the founder and author of the Strong Female Antagonist blog. Beautiful welcomes to Jen Adams. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> nice introduction of our energy right now, I suppose. Uh, I, I, I hope I didn't I hope I didn't beef that up too much. Oh no, I just was really touched by your introduction. I was like, oh, that bit brought a little tear to my eye. So yeah, I've also just finished watching this movie, so <laughs> I'm a little feelingsy, oh, you know. <laughs> of course, not a dry eye with this movie, for Ooh, sure. No. <laughs> yeah, but thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so excited. I'm I'm so excited to have you as well. And uh, hey, you know, if you got touched by the intro, it's your work. You know, I'm just <laughs> oh. writing down reality. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so keep it up. You're, you're oh. doing great work. Oh, and like I said, you. it makes me real excited to have you on. Um, before we get into our discussion and talk a little bit, I always like to start each episode with a quick quote about beauty or aesthetics. And this time it's, it's somewhat about beauty. I'm kind of drifting a little bit away from it, not as a topic, but as a quote, just mm -hmm. because it's a lot harder as you go to find yeah. beauty quotes. <laughs> mm -hmm. But there are plenty of other aesthetic and emotional philosophical things to talk about in films that tie into beauty. So last week's episode, I got into the sublime this week. We'll talk about something else and I'm going to quickly do that quote. It is tragedy is not just a dramatic form in which some works are beautiful and others are not tragedy is itself a species of beauty. All tragedies are beautiful. I'm sure my listeners are very happy that it was a short quote for once, uh, <laughs> and we will get into who said this and what that all means. But first, Jen, let's talk a little bit about you and your relationship with horror. So where did all this come from? You got all these projects going. How did that, what is the, uh, the spark that started the fire? Um, well, I think the spark probably was Stephen King. I think um, seeing mm. it in the dark half, I remember in the stand on my dad's shelf when I was little and just really being intrigued and then starting to read Night Shift, I think, and then just kind of going down the road of horror and exploring all of what that means. And then when I was in high school, I think I discovered Slashers with Scream mm. and and that just opened up this whole other door to me about how to explore like what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a woman and strength and um, beauty. And, and I love that quote because like I think there's there is a lot of beauty and tragedy. And I think that's kind of what a lot of horror is about and about finding your way out of the tragedy to a place of beauty. And I think that's what I really love about the horror genre is that it really helps me understand myself and understand my life and where I am in it and how I can move through it. And I think I've done that through Stephen King and I've done that through 
I don't know, just seeing a lot of different, really strong women in horror and, and not even just strong women, but strong characters. Right. And yeah, so that's, that's really what drew me to the genre. I love Final Girls. I love survivor stories and which is what this is and i'm sorry i know we haven't introduced the movie yet but yeah we'll get there okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah just I, it just it shows me what i'm afraid of in a way that helps me understand it like it, i king has wrote a short story a long time ago um called lunch at the gotham cafe and he talks about quitting smoking and he just says like that gave him a vocabulary to understand his divorce and this is in the story not stephen oh. king but i feel like horror gives me a vocabulary often a visual vocabulary to understand myself and my life and and you know some of the things i've been through and some of the some of the places i want to go so i love that so much this this allegory of the vocabulary because i feel that too for sure the older i get the more i look back on horror and try to see since it's been a mainstay of my whole life for various reasons throughout my childhood and adulthood, of course, but as I, the older I get, the more indeed I see things from the, we have the vocabulary of like the Sydney's of the world and mm-hmm. Nancy's and your Kruger's and your Myers's and then your Pymans, you know, like mm-hmm. there's, there's so much, and these mean so many different things. If you know that vocabulary, you have a shorthand of discussing more intricate things or mm-hmm. you're just fanning out. That's also a possibility. True. <laughs> yeah. And that is really fun too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So did you always have that relationship with horror then? Cause you say you, you started with Stephen King. So were you already kind of analyzing or at least seeing the mirror between your own life and the people that you were reading about, or did that something that developed over time? It's, it's something that developed over time actually putting word to page or word like speaking it into the world. I think I was always kind of that's why I was drawn to it because I think my mind was doing it without really like like Stephen King not to keep bringing him up but I just love him. He talks about writing The Shining without realizing he was writing about himself and I think I was Mm. watching these movies and seeing myself and not understanding and it was until like I wrote a letter to the Stephen King cast about Cujo because I just kind of disagreed with his take. And now that I think back, I'm like, it was maybe a little, a little bit of a dick when I did that. But that was the first time that I wrote, a, I wrote anything that wasn't for school. And that was the first time I really kind of okay. tried to understand like addiction in terms of that movie. And then I wrote a couple more and I was like, oh, I can, I can do this. I can write stuff. And man, it feels good to do it, you know, and to start talking. And, and you know, I think writing and podcasting, I think there's a lot of overlap there. You know, it's just, it's like forming, it's like taking the, the images and the feelings out of the feeling center of your brain and moving it into the processing center. And whether it's verbal or like writing, I think it kind of achieves the same purpose a lot of times. Yeah, I totally feel that. It's one of the reasons I started podcasting in the first place as well as I started writing. Sometimes it's more time consuming. You want to get it right. And with podcasting, you know, if you have those meaningful conversations with like minded people, if you do that in your daily life, sometimes you're like, oh, I should record this. Right. (laughs) Uh And then you just do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the difference I think I find with writing and podcasting is I feel like writing a lot of times is more private in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so it lets me edit a lot, you know, right. And I I mean, you can edit podcasts because very few of them are actually live. But it's just that that ability to be private with thoughts and to get the thoughts out. And then like, nobody ever has to see them if you don't want to and or you Mm -hmm. can edit it and you can put it out into the world. But I think podcasting for me kind of 
gives me a connection with people and it allows me to have like some of my best friends are podcasters that I've met, you know, that we've just talked about things that we feel really deeply about. So I love that about the whole horror podcasting scene as well, because obviously you have your different genres within podcasting. Some people are comedians who are giving hot takes and then riffing on the films, but <laughs> mm-hmm. doing it very smartly because you need to know the films to do it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you also have people who look at you know, like the podcast you're on with the psychoanalysis podcast. And I think the Losers Club as well, you were going to talk about what's really at the heart of what we're seeing and experiencing. Mm-hmm. So the human experience part, I think is just so much easier to talk to people about sometimes mm-hmm. just because you can hear inflections and in tone, you can see expressions, you get to vibe with people and it's been a wonderful little community that I've gotten to know as well. I can imagine friendships uh, they run deep within the podcast world. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a nice little community. And yeah. <laughs> I think it's so cool that you started by basically being one of those people who wrote a letter to the editor to say, <laughs> I, uh, I don't really agree with that. I know. <laughs> I know. And I mean, I, yeah, I, I didn't necessarily, I don't know. I do feel kind of shitty about it (laughs) but i mean i think Ah. if i were to write that letter now i think i would have said it in a more eloquent way like here's what i see you know because there is no right or wrong interpretation of anything you know um especially Uh a piece of art and so me seeing something in it doesn't mean that it's there and it doesn't someone else not seeing that doesn't mean it's not there it's just how we choose to interpret it which i think is what i love about movies in general is it allows me to like connect to feelings that i have and i'm the only one that has that specific feeling because i'm the only one who lives in my brain and lives in my body and you know true Well, thank you for always sharing that. You know, I've really enjoyed your work so far. And, you know, it's always, I know it's always going to be something from the heart when I read it. And I find (laughs) that stuff the most interesting to read than something that's been overly carefully crafted to, you know, hit an audience, Mm -hmm. make your audience. So I really admire that you just, you throw it out there and you do the work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, you're going to have to get used to compliments. On here, I know. I, that's like, <laughs> I'm just going to shrink for a little bit, but I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Well, we'll, we'll spare your uh, personal, like, I guess, shame at the moment uh, to <laughs> go into our film then, because I think we're nicely warmed up. We're, yeah. we're going to have a nice chat about this. So, Jen. What movie did you choose to talk about today? I chose um, Mike Flanagan's uh, 2016, I believe, adaptation of Stephen King's book, Gerald's Game. Gerald's Game. Now, this was a first time watch for me. I yep. I cannot wait to hear what you thought of it. Did you Have you read the book or did you know anything about no. the story? I'm not much of a reader. So you went in I, just... I'm a little slow on the reading, but yeah, I went in just kind of like, I've heard about it. I know the hype about this thing. And I knew you were really excited. Yes, I love it. And I just will say audiobooks are fantastic too. If you enjoy podcasting, that That's might be true. a way in. So I but. might start doing that, especially if I can find somebody with a pleasurable voice in a particular <laughs> book. And, and, I'll make you, you a know. list. <laughs> oh, yeah, please do. I love audiobooks. Get me into some books. Yeah. Okay. Well, for anybody who hasn't seen Gerald's Game, I have a very brief synopsis that tries to avoid as many spoilers as possible. Uh, But the podcast will get into spoiler territory. So if you haven't read it or seen it, then maybe you should go fix that. It's only an hour, 45 minutes. You you can come back to this afterwards. (laughs) Um, But if you don't mind spoilers or if you've already seen it and stuff, well, 
eh, hopefully you don't criticize my synopsis too much. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fantastic. So, <laughs> well, we'll see. Here we go. <laughs> Jesse and Gerald make their way to a holiday house owned by their friends for the weekend. They want to reinvigorate their marriage of 11 years with solitude at the romantic seaside view. Things already begin on quite a strange note when they nearly hit a wild-looking dog eating roadkill in the middle of the road. Jesse wants to feed the poor animal, but Gerald is more interested in their weekend getaway. After setting in, it isn't long until Jesse is handcuffed to the headboard of their lavish bed in a new nightgown she bought especially for the occasion. However, things take a turn when the two discover that they have completely different desires for this weekend. Gerald starts to explore some dark sexual fantasies Jesse had no idea he was into. The two have a fight about how Gerald's advances make Jesse feel, and before he can get the keys to uncuff Jesse, Gerald succumbs to a sudden heart attack and dies at the foot of the bed. I promise you this is not a spoiler. <laughs> Jesse is left there, cuffed to the bedpost, with no one around for miles, and a very hungry wild dog lurking inside the house. Now, alone, Grieving and terrified for her safety, Jessie must learn to come to terms with her past in order to survive. What's more, she must come to accept the one thing she has never been able to accept before, herself. Oh. That's what I got out of this movie in a very succinct bit. <laughs> Don't know your feelings on that, but uh, yeah, I'd love to hear why you brought this movie to the fore when I asked you about beauty and horror. Um, well, and I think that was a fantastic synopsis and kudos to you for writing a, a spoiler free one. I, ha I really struggle with that. Like I always want to talk about the endings of movies um, <laughs> it, before I realize people I'm spoiling it for them. Um, I love this movie. This is my favorite King adaptation. It was one of my favorite books by him, but I think rereading it, I got to it in the chronological reread around 2015. And mm. it hit at a very particular time. I think I was reading it as the Access Hollywood tape was coming out. And mm. I remember reading that and then um, like seeing it on social media and then switching here uh, to listen. I was listening to the audiobook of this and really hitting me. And it helped me kind of realize and kind of understand a lot of things that I had been keeping hidden in my own past that I really hadn't mm. acknowledged to myself. Um, I think this is this is a movie like the surface level of why I wanted to talk about this is because that image of the eclipse, the image right. with Jesse, older Jesse and younger Jesse sitting on a bench with this the in the red with the circle over the bench is I use that image in therapy. Like I use it as a, okay. like a, a mental trigger for reparenting things, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. So like I keep, I have it saved on my phone. So that's the first thing that popped into my mind when I think about an image of a movie. I'm not the most visual thinker all the time. So I don't always notice unless it's really striking a lot of the visual aspects of movies. But this is one that really stood out to me because I feel like the visual element of it is so closely tied with the narrative story and like right. the, the emotional core of it. And I feel like Mike Flanagan just does this phenomenal job of really making what you're feeling show up on the screen in a way that is really, that has really helped me unlock a lot of things about my life and myself. So it's a power that Flanagan has with film. In fact, I think it's such a striking image in this particular film because it kind of jars with the rest of the visual palette of the mm -hmm. film. The rest of it's done in a pretty, 
uh, you know, it's like a drama movie in yeah. a way. It's very clean cut. I mean, you have when we get into stuff like the Moonlight Man, you know, the real like horror director stuff starts coming out. Mm-hmm. But that eclipse is just so fantastical and big, and the metaphor becomes very strong. Mm-hmm. Especially since we know that we're in her emotional core at mm-hmm. that point. So I yeah, I see that. And you know, when it comes to beauty and aesthetics and stuff, it doesn't always have to be visuals. Mm-hmm. So I think that when I well, that's why I picked the quote that I chose when I was watching the film. I was just really drawn in by the situations mm-hmm. and the journey that Jesse has to go through. Beauty is totally woven through that. There's a lot of impactful emotion and aesthetic thrown into the performances and just the way it's written. Mm -hmm. So I can see why this movie is well. It doesn't really rely on visuals too much because it's not the point. Yeah. I really like that about this one. Yeah. Well, and this was the one um, that everybody for years thought was unfilmable because it is basically Jessie in a room by herself, not moving for the majority of the book. And the book is slightly yeah. different. Like she doesn't see herself and talk to herself or okay. Gerald. She talks to um, a friend from college and, and I guess she does. She talks to a, like the good wife version of herself. She kind of mm. calls her, comes to know her. So it's slightly different in that regard. But I remember thinking like how are they gonna make this because so Mm. much of it is internal and I just like Mike Flanagan I think is my favorite director right now one because I think he understands Stephen King in a way that I do and is able to put that on screen because you could say the same thing about Dr. Sleep like there's so much of that movie that is internal but he's able to pull it out and like really make these feelings a visual element so yeah, yet another movie that people thought was just completely unfilmable because of totally. how much it's just about Danny's, you know, trauma, basically. Mm-hmm. Like how right. do you film trauma without showing it over and over and over again? And right. And he nailed it. Mm-hmm. He really did. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that this was an interesting choice when you first gave it to me. I was like, okay, knowing I knew a little bit about what the film was about. I think mm-hmm. I'd read one or two articles about it as well. So I knew thematically mm-hmm. what I was kind of getting into. So I thought, I can see this. Okay, uh, all right. But I'm very interested because I had only seen trailers where they pretty much just focus on her strapped to a bed. Mm-hmm. So, which is great marketing as well. It's two movies in one, basically. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. And without, because there's so much more to it. And when you said when you were reading in the synopsis, that's not a spoiler because that's 15 minutes, 20 minutes into the movie, you know, and yeah. it's, it's just about so much more, which is what I really like. Because as I was watching, it's been a couple of years since I've seen this. You know, watching it is a a hard experience. You know, it's um, it's you're watching basically an attempted rape at the beginning and it's it's rough to watch, but I find it to be like I've got a lot of thoughts about what an eclipse means in this story and like the way that Flanagan plays with the shadow and the light. And I think it's one of those for me, it's a um, going through the tunnel to come out the other side in another place, you know? Mm. And, and so like, if I don't go into that darkness, I can't get to where I need to go, which I think is kind of what Jesse's story ultimately is in this movie, you know? Right. Oh, that's a great metaphor. And now I'm suddenly feeling as if like, it almost feels as if at a very young age, he was kind of thrown into that journey, that that pathway and that tunnel. But Mm -hmm. due to the circumstances and 
I mean, due to this, you know, the situation with her father, of course, mm-hmm. she just stops in the tunnel mm-hmm. and you're just always in darkness and you, yeah. you don't even see a light at the end of the tunnel anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, this is the first time I was thinking about really what the imagery of the circle means, you know, because Uh there's, there's the circle of the eclipse, and then there's the ring that she wears, which is a circle. And then there's the handcuffs. And like, when you are in that you're trapped. And there's, like, there's a lot of beauty in a circle and um, a Uh shape that has no points. But it also it's never ending. And you can go around and around and around and never find an end. And I think like that's like the the handcuffs keep her trapped, just like the ring kept her trapped in a lot of ways. And she finds that she has been trapped in this eclipse, in this moment of darkness since it happened, you know. Ah, you're you're throwing out some great analyses here. Really enjoying (laughs) this. And you're also hitting some marks without even knowing it about philosophy on beauty and aesthetics because you're right that not only is the circle considered like a perfect image in terms of beautiful proportions for like classical philosophy and, and, and Victorian philosophy and stuff, they would often look for things like roundness and smoothness and form. And especially at the time when it was just a bunch of men who were running it. And like, they basically just said like a beautiful woman is the only beauty that they could think of if they were a straight man. So it was just constantly women's bodies that they were using for it, which I think mm-hmm. goodness, we found more ways to talk about a <laughs> vast concept than this. Right. Uh, like, is it, you know, uh, men will be men, uh, <laughs> but you know, they but they were talking a lot about smoothness, roundness, and so to see the circle used here so often in a movie that is so beautiful and touching, I think is n- not at all a coincidence. It's 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 a calculated decision to show, maybe not in the philosophical sense, but to to show this circle as you're talking about in different ways and have different meanings behind them, and in turn they're creating a very beautiful structure to the film which just kind of feeds the tragedy of it all because mm-hmm. it is kind of like watching something beautiful get destroyed over time is mm-hmm. how it feels at least up until about the end of the film I'd say that's when it gets a little more hopeful yeah yeah and I don't know if uh, it just like not as much for me being destroyed but just like staying frozen and just never like Mm -hmm. denying the ability to grow. And so I don't know how familiar you are with Stephen King, but this falls in a series of books that he wrote in the early nineties that I call, I might be the only one that calls it this, but I call it the eclipse series or the eclipse trilogy. Cause I think of it as um, Dolores Claiborne, Rose matter and Gerald's game. And they are all three about women in, various abusive relationships. Okay. And so there is a direct connection. Like in the movie, she talks about seeing a woman standing over a well. And I don't know, are you familiar with Dolores Claiborne? Have you seen that movie? Years and years and years ago. Um, It's good. it's not too fresh. Yeah, well, it's it's not as good as Gerald's Game, I don't think, but it is still very good. But so she, (laughs) (laughs) not to spoil that movie, but there is, she is in a very bad marriage and Mm. she also has a well in her backyard and that well comes into play. And so the idea, because the the entrance to a well is circle too. Mm. And so um, there's this link between the two books where she is standing over the well 
while the same eclipse is happening. And so they're connected in Stephen King's world. And so in the book, she sees a girl sitting on a dock watching the eclipse. And then Jesse sees a woman standing over a well. And so in Dolores Claiborne, there is a a lot of discussion about what a well is. And it's kind of like what we were talking about with a tunnel. It's like, that's where the secrets are. That's where everything is stored because it never sees the sun. And that's where the light, you can cover it up and you can pretend that it's not there, especially this well, because it has been overgrown and she like actually doesn't know it exists until she almost falls into it. And so Jessie in the book describes her trauma as being like at the bottom of a well. And that's something that's like language that I've used in my own therapy to talk about past trauma is like, the it's a lot of really deep water and sometimes you stick your toe in and just the fear that if you go all the way in you'll never be able to get out and so that's kind of what i see the darkness in this movie and the shadows kind of playing with but it's also that that connection to the circle and the, the this is something that encapsulates or that encloses you know I really want to check out Dolores Claiborne again then because I I like the fact that they're connected. Stephen King's so good at very subtly connecting things and letting Mm -hmm. the fans kind of make the connections there. Yeah. I also find it interesting. Now I know there's no probably like conscious connection here, but you know, just around that same time in Japan, you have the ring that's Mm. using the well for the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. but with more anger involved because you Mm -hmm. have like childlike rage attached to it. But Mm -hmm. it, it, Completely. It's where the secrets go. And in that case, uh, you know, we do have uh, oh, Sadako. I think it was her name in, in Japanese mm-hmm. one. How yeah. she is permanently linked to the water in the well mm-hmm. the moment that she hits it. So yeah. it's an interesting overlap there, especially since it's all roughly at the same time. I suppose that was on people's minds in the collective consciousness. Uh, this this darkness and ring. Right. Yeah. Something in the water, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe. I also love that there's a mild reference to that on the cover art for Gerald's game, or at least the art that they're using on Netflix, mm-hmm. that they have like the, the image of the ring basically, but then they do a nice kind of inverted version of it. So it's white with red mm-hmm. instead of using all the darker tones. So the red is the light, which that's an interesting thing to me that the light in her fantasy is red. Mm-hmm. They'll also have you also have the red eyes from the moonlight man. Yeah. So there's a lot of, I guess that's more the actual pain of the trauma that we're seeing. Her world is laced in red and pain. And it's not until she can finally get out of the eclipse and see the sun that she can see the bright colors of everything around her and live her life being who she is. Mm Because that's kind of the main point of all this. She hasn't really been herself. And we don't really know this until about, basically until the dog starts attacking her. Is mm-hmm. when we start to get all of the the visions, start talking to her and explaining, you really have to start thinking back a bit to understand mm-hmm. how to get out of this situation. Yeah, very intelligently done on King's part. Yeah, I think so too. And a lot of that is straight out of King. Aside from who she talks to when yep. she's seeing herself, most of it is pretty straightforward. Um, with the book, some of the dialogue is different just because it is different characters. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, the the blood, um, I believe that is in King's book too. Although I think it is a really striking choice that Flanagan chose it because it, it does feel it feels blood like blood red, you know. Yeah. So there's. A lot of different ways I think I could probably interpret it. I mean, the obvious one that is slightly uncomfortable, so please stop me if you want. But she's about 12, 
Um, this mm-hmm. is a formative experience in developing how she will view her body for the rest of her life. And I think that there is a parallel there. Um, she is becoming a sexual being. And I think that this is, I, I don't want to say this is like puberty because I don't think it is. And I don't think it is this. I, she is not becoming a woman in this moment, quote unquote. <laughs> no, but no. I do think that it is a fundamental change in how she sees herself and how she sees herself able to connect with other people, um, with men. Cause I mean, I, she is apparently straight in the movie. Um, so any romantic partners, I think this is going to shape how she interacts with them. And then there's also the blood of cutting her hand and like, that's, yeah. that's the freedom, you know? And once that is shed, that is when she's able to, to kind of get through the other side, like literally get her hand through the other side of the ring, you know, through that uh-huh. blood. And interestingly to that point as well, to, to expand upon what you were just saying, you know, yes, yeah, she's at that form at a time of her life. You do have where the blood becomes a different meaning for, for any, uh, say any, any person with a uterus mm-hmm. and you see that it literally shackles her because of the abuse of her father. And literally handcuffs her at some point as well. So mm-hmm. for her whole adult life, the blood has shackled her through her relationships, everything. And it is interesting how it does become her source of freedom that she's like, but it's the best lubricant you could possibly have. And you got to get out of this uh, handcuff. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it was just the lubricant, though, because I'm like, you did cut like a whole muscle off of your hand, too. That kind of gave you some wiggle room. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> to be honest, I I wouldn't know because I did not watch the whole thing. <laughs> I think I watched okay. it once and I was like, oh, my God, because that is and I've talked about this a lot, like body horror <laughs> and gore is like my kryptonite. Like I cannot okay. stomach it. So, again, like another <laughs> thing, like where I think on the surface, this would seem like a movie that I do not like because that is horrific and it it's is. so viscerally filmed. Like every once in a while, somebody will post a gif of it and it i just have to avoid twitter until it cycles out but um right the book is like two pages long and i just don't read it anymore because <laughs> i just that's so king it it's really so is i'm gonna just batter you with all the emotional horror that i can and give you one really descriptive like multi-page moment I remember mm-hmm. Christine had moments like that where it was like, this is oddly descriptive of how this person's dying in this car. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's really good at throwing that in. And because he's so good at writing characters, like you are with those characters and it's like, you feel like your skin is ripping off and like, ugh, yeah. And I think part of the genius of this book and the story is that it has those different elements of horror too, because it has the mm-hmm. Moonlight Man, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. And it has this really the visceral gore and then it has just this building dread so it really hits you on all levels you know not even to mention the emotion and the horrific like scene where she's talking to her father in the bedroom but i was watching the hang i was watching my arm over my face during the handcuff scene this time (laughs) because i even had to make some noises so that i couldn't hear the Mm -hmm. squelching Um, i'm not gonna lie to you i put my hand up i didn't want to watch it i just as soon as i saw her like crush the glass and then pull a shard out of her hand i just did this Uh with my hand and covered my face and i just kind of like looked at my partner because she had seen the movie before and she's looking at me and like i'm not looking at that yeah i could just hear it and she's like oh no oh 
goodness, like what? She's like, well, I thought it was over, but I looked over there and it's just like in the middle of it. Like I, I hear it squishing. I'm, I'm waiting for her to like scream because mm-hmm. that's the sign that it's done. Yeah. But oh yeah, <laughs> so. you got to wait for the handcuff hitting the, the chain, yeah. hitting the bedpost. Yeah. So that you know it's safe. And even then, I don't want to look too carefully because it just... Oh, it really gets gets under my skin. But I feel like it's so (laughs) it's so like effective because like I I have a scar phobia that I've talked about a lot Mm -hmm. on psychoanalysis. And a lot of it, I think, is because there's probably a lot a really deep well of reasons why I have this phobia. But a big part of it is I think it's like it is like a visual marker of pain. And mm. like the way that I grew up, I was not supposed to show any of that pain, kind of like Jess, Jesse. And I mean, it was right. much different situations. Like we didn't, you know, I didn't, that didn't happen to me. But okay. like you just kind of live not acknowledging things that happen and pretending that it doesn't hurt. And when it's feelings and emotions, you can do that. And people won't know. And eventually, like, it comes to a point where you can't anymore. But for a long time, you can get away with it. But if there's a scar on your hand or there's blood, you can't deny that, you know, and it it is real, you know. And so I think a lot of times what scars are is like this just visual marker of this pain or the tragedy to kind of pull it back to your quote. And like, it's taken me a long time to kind of understand that like those scars are beauty. Like there is beauty in the fact that this cut open and has healed and that is beautiful and i'm still not to a point where i can like viscerally know that but i can like (laughs) and like logically understand that but like what she is doing she's peeling part of her hand away in a way that like she's peeling this part of her life away too and she's like i if i stay in this handcuff i will die and if i stay I think of it in terms of wanting to talk to her father again, because that's kind of similar to my life path at the moment. And please tell me if I'm oversharing. <laughs> but you, you were the only one who knows if that's oversharing <laughs> okay. or not. So um, I, I like to let the guests say their piece. Well, just let I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but I will not be offended <laughs> if I'm oversharing. <laughs> but like, I think about like, that's like, if she does, she's going to stay in this handcuff, she's going to die. If she stays handcuffed to the secret, She's not necessarily going to die, but she's not going to live, you know? And so this pulling this part of her hand off, it's like, if that's what it takes to be free, then there's beauty there, you know? And you do kind of see that that's the, so the situation with her father is kind of the next step in her life that Mm -hmm. you may not physically die, but you may feel like you're dying. Mm -hmm. That now that she's been so close to actual death and she has this new life ahead of her, why the hell would you want to live it with the same exact trauma and baggage that you've carried and frankly abuses that you've kind of allowed to form around you because mm-hmm. you were told this is how it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that in a way, I don't know how much they go into. I mean, I'm sure they go way deeper into her character and past and stuff in the book, but just based on what we see in the film, we don't get a lot of flashbacks. We just see, the events from when she was 12 and then we see, you know, whatever's happening inside the bed and through conversations, memories, mm-hmm. we, we understand things, but she came across to me as somebody who's also kind of inadvertently been sheltered because she's always been put in a position of like, you stay quiet and mm-hmm. you just, you participate in this relationship, but you don't say things that matter to you because that's bad. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. But that also makes you, you know, amiable and taken care of. In, in a way, 
Mm-hmm. Gerald's definitely holding it over her head in her fictional memory version of him. And I kind of felt that that was a huge step when she finally decides to just cut her hand and deal with it. So she probably hasn't had a lot of physical pain in her life that she's had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And this time it's like, it's it's literally do or die. Mm-hmm. And I love that it's herself that's just like, girl, mm-hmm. you get the glass. You remember how much that didn't actually hurt? This mm-hmm. is going to hurt more, but it's going to be fine. Right. And that was such a good scene because mm-hmm. of that. Oh, yeah. When she talks to herself and talking herself through that, and it's like, you you can do this. You have to get through it. Um, and even if it doesn't work, like it's you have to do something because you're not going to stay here. Yeah. She, I, I do agree. I think she has been sheltered and I think she has aligned herself or partnered with people that will shelter her. And so she's kind of allowing herself to be sheltered and she is protecting herself. And a lot of what happens when you survive trauma is you build this really, really strong wall around yourself Mm -hmm. and you don't want to let anyone in. And so you gravitate towards people who aren't going to try to bring that wall down, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's kind of what, what happens with Gerald and what she realizes is that that's, she's not really engaging with the world, you know, that she's, yeah. she's keeping herself trapped, you know? And that's what, when they explore, I, you say that she doesn't manifest Gerald in the book, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, she likes Gerald a lot more in the movie than she does in the book. <laughs> Oh, wow. I well, like Gerald in the book. I'm sure if it were a longer film, they would have <laughs> done yeah. a little bit more to, to make him less likable. Yeah. Uh, but I think they did a pretty good job, too, because what I liked in the film, at least, was they have a well-rounded character. So mm-hmm. she's not infallible. So her memories are also not infallible. And I love that mm-hmm. she starts to go through that because I'm sure we all have doubts when we see a side of a person that we're like, who are you? Mm-hmm. And then we have to kind of ask ourselves, like, where have you seen this before? Was that just a joke? Mm-hmm. Did you mean that? Because she heard the nasty sex jokes and stuff with his coworkers. And the fact that she goes through that whole thought process of like, oh, but he was just mm-hmm. trying to get along with the potential investor. I, I don't know about you, but I, I as an audience member, I was thinking like, well, no, nah, man, like, you don't just tell jokes like that unless you know them. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. the, I don't know if he was that person. Maybe I'm sure in the book they make it clear, but <laughs> uh, yeah. I do love that she doubts it, and mm-hmm. that's where that sort of wall gets shattered by herself because she mm-hmm. starts to think like, "Was I ever safe? Did I even do it right?" Right. Yeah. Well, and in the book, she actually kicks him. Like she realized, okay. and that's what causes the heart attack. Um, and in the book, oh. it's a little more like she kicks him off of the bed. He falls. Okay. And when she realizes, because there's a moment where she realizes he knows that I'm saying no, and he's pretending that it is part of the role play. And so she knows, yeah. like they have this moment of understanding. And so we are watching this and we are thinking that is a horrible joke. And if I heard someone say that, I would say something. And I think that as audience members, we can watch that and say that. And if our friend told us that story, we would. But I think for Jesse, I completely understand why she doesn't say anything about it and why she just kind of believes that he was just joking for this investor because like mm-hmm. the... And one of the things I love about the story is she talks about what was worse was not the actual assault. It was the what happened after when her father 
convinced her, like so manipulatively, like convinced her to basically beg him not to tell anybody. And so he has convinced her at 12 that the truth is not safe for her. And that she, if she does say to Gerald, that joke was not okay, that's not safe. You know, even if nothing would physically happen or if it would just cause a fight, like that trauma is so deeply ingrained in her that like I can't tell the truth because I did something wrong and I am wrong to be offended by this. And so it's not okay for me to say that. That's that's part of that shelter is that this is safe. This denial that I'm living in is safe for now. But what you realize is that it's only safe for so long. And eventually you're going to run into a wall that, you know, you you can't hide behind anymore. And it feels safe, but it's purely poisonous the whole right. time. You, you destroy your own sense of self and your self-worth as you go along. And it's a long you know, arduous process is, you know, sometimes you're, oh, look at her. She, she was early forties, late thirties before she finally was put in a position. It took her husband of 11 years to just croak right on top of her for her to finally go, oh, wow. I've never actually just sat alone and had to deal with any of this uh-huh. because it took literal lack of safety for her to realize it's time to have a feeling that's not very safe right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I get that. That is how trauma builds. I've had that myself with, uh, you know, smaller events in my life, but even the smallest little seed can grow into this huge, just toxic tree. that's just mm-hmm. you know, pumping you full of poison and you don't even know it until you get rid of it. Yeah. Another thing I picked up on in that whole sequence with their father as well is, uh, he also makes it sound like, it's not just that the truth is bad because he was like, oh, I should tell the truth. The truth is good. It will get it. It'll be like a bandaid. But the only reason I would have to do it this way and upset them right now is because I can't trust you to not tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So like, you are bad at being protective. You mm-hmm. were bad at being a family member and nobody trusts you. And you already see that her mom does not like her. Mm hmm. Very actively so. So he uses something that she knows and he knows that she knows. and He weaponizes it immediately. Mm-hmm. Oh, your mom will be real mad. And but it'll be with me. Don't worry, honey. I'll take the hit. Oh, mm-hmm. I I wanted to kill him throughout this whole scene. I just got me. I felt worse and worse and worse. That scene is done so well. It really is. And, you know, I love Henry Thomas. And he just sees he he and Mike Flanagan casts him in a lot of things for good reason. Yeah. I think he's great. But he has this this ability to like have this really trustworthy face and then just say something that just rips your heart out (laughs) you know and and like who are you and then it's like you see that kind of lurking menace behind his eyes and I love the way um, this scene is shot too and it's another thing I want to talk about is the shadows in this movie because just the way like it's behind them they're not looking at each other he's kind of looking over and she even mentions like he could face me for the lie, but he can't face me for the truth. He had to look yeah. away for that. And then to have it flipped when she, when adult Jesse is talking to him and he's in the room. I think that's just such a beautiful way of showing that like that. And one thing that I've learned about trauma and reparenting is part of you stays in that moment, you know, and you your your mm-hmm. brain doesn't understand that time has passed. And so like when she hears mouse or when Gerald says daddy like it her brain thinks that she's back on the bench you know 
And I just love how it he kind of finds a way to really show us that because she's just looking at him with this like this little girl's face and it's and it's flipped. It's but it's the same. It's like a mirror image, but it's the same shadows and it's the same setting. And it just Mm -hmm. it just breaks your heart, you know. That's typical Flanagan visual storytelling at oh, its yeah. best. You mm-hmm. know, the subtleties that he uses <laughs> with shadows. Ugh. Mm, yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen anything by him that I didn't like sob for at least five minutes at the end of. <laughs> <laughs> like he just like I've I've said like he speaks my emotional language and it just oh it's just beautiful. And the first time I watched this, I cried for a long time after it. I could see why for sure, and I think he's definitely if not my favorite one of maybe like three people I could say are my favorite directors right now. Mm. Even if I haven't been too into some of the properties he may have picked up here and there, I've always been floored by the final product Mm. and just his ability to tap into the human condition and all the ugly bits of what make us people and still make us love these people Mm -hmm. just unequivocally. We just, you know, there's no condition that they have to meet. We just love them. Yeah. Even though they keep making all these mistakes. And I love that he did it here too, because I think any other filmmaker would have looked at it and said, well, the only way you could really film this is to make Jesse kind of perfect. And, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a little glass butterfly that, you know, it was never really her fault of any kind, nothing, you know, all the trauma is just, I don't know. They, they really would have tried to make an angel out of her to make sure that everybody else was super evil and mm-hmm. then you could be scared about it. Whereas I liked how he's like, no, they're just people. And the dog is really scary. And then we are going into her emotions in the midst of all of this. And I like that also he doesn't go to the other extreme where you're trying to be like, well, Jesse's not perfect either. Look how shitty she is as a person. Mm-hmm. She's a person. Yeah. And I like that. Because mm-hmm. you can look at her situation. And I, I don't know <laughs> how you felt when you saw it or read it for the first time. There are a lot of decisions made in this movie that I'm just like, why are you doing this? What are you doing this for? This is bad decision making. No. Uh, but I, I probably, I mean, I think I would handle it differently, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I like that about her, that her traumas, obviously, it's never anybody's fault what they've built up and what's happened to them. How we deal with them, we can help if we have mm-hmm. the right guidance for that. But I'm more talking about the survivalist stuff too, the horror related stuff. That's where I was like, oh, I love that Jesse's not perfect because she's making mm-hmm. a lot of dumb choices <laughs> until mm-hmm. she finally starts making the right choices. Right. This movie's very stressful. <laughs> yes, it is very stressful. Yeah, it's it's a ride for a movie that doesn't really go anywhere. Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's an emotional journey. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on that, so the quote that I brought in about tragedy, I'd love to explore that real quick. That quote comes from a man by the name of Joe Sachs. This isn't from any particular article or anything. It's actually from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. <laughs> and it's all about Aristotle and a piece that he wrote called The Poetics. So it's actually just Aristotle talking about poetry and written word. And, you know, so we're talking Greek tragedies here and the, and the way they're written and him being a, a very hoity-toity philosopher. He's just kind of nitpicking like, well, there's a lot of form, but there's also beauty here. And what sort Mm -hmm. of emotions are we having? And he's just waxing philosophical about something more analytical. And Joe follows up that quote and actually gives a little list about the components of a tragedy. And he says, by following Aristotle's lead, we have now found five marks of tragedy. One, 
it imitates an action, which I think is applicable to this film quite mm-hmm. well. The, the, the act of being bound, basically, mm-hmm. and escaping. Two, it arouses pity and fear, both in copious amounts. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> check and check. Check, check. <laughs> Three, it displays the human image as such, which it's what I keep coming back to. Jesse's just a woman. She's just a person mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. has flaws, who has merits. And yeah, she's like you and she's like me and she's just yeah. a real person. Yeah. We all make mistakes and we also all, uh, you know, didn't deserve a lot of things, basically. Mm-hmm. Four, it ends in wonder and you have the whole transition of her eclipse turning into the sun by the end of it. You have, and we'll get into the Moonlight Man here in a moment, but just to touch on that, you have the Moonlight Man being something that changes from an allegory to a real thing that she doesn't really find too impressive, mm-hmm. which helps. And five, it is inherently beautiful. And <laughs> I would have to agree with that as well. I think a good tragedy doesn't just move us in a tear-jerking melodrama kind of way. It also moves us in the beauty of humanity mm-hmm. and seeing human beings go through the whole psychological process of different situations and emotions that they have to in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is the closest to a Greek tragedy in the modern day that I have seen in ages. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And I think like, when like, a lot of times we think about beauty as being perfection. And Mm -hmm. I think they're like, what I am growing to understand beauty being is just an emotion. Just like this, like when you see something, or you hear something, and you feel something and you connect to it so strongly that you just, you feel like you're going to explode, you know, and that's like when Mm -hmm. I cry a lot of times, like, sometimes like, have you ever like just seen a commercial and something about it just hits you? And you're just like, Oh, my God, I'm crying over this like M&M's commercial or something. And it's like, there's, (laughs) that's what is the beauty is that that it got me to feel something. And sometimes that is a, a perfect image that is just so strikingly beautiful, that I can't I, I don't know what to, I don't know how to process it without like having a physical reaction to it. And sometimes it is tragedy. It's something that is so scary that I have to scream or that I have to cry or that I have to like get up and walk around the room, which is some sometimes how I process being really, really upset. And like I get mm-hmm. my little stress claws sometimes, you know, <laughs> claw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel that yeah. <laughs> I, I've had a, I've had a few claws in my time as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. That's what I've found in a lot of my studies as well Is there are different schools of thought on it. Of course, some believe that beauty is inherently just pleasure, some sort of mm-hmm. pleasure that you get from the aesthetic. And that does drift more into the idealistic side of things. So the fact that it might be a perfect image or a perfect sound or something. Mm hmm. But in, it does have a sense of pleasure because even in tragedy, there's catharsis. And mm-hmm. that cathartic, that feeling, that's the feeling of beauty right there. That's the thing that we're yeah. just like, I just grew as a person mm-hmm. and I needed this release. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. And that's what I get from this movie. And I know that there are a lot of people that don't like the ending that feel like it turns into a Hallmark movie. And mm-hmm. I can understand that. Like, I see that. But for me, it's like this movie is like therapy and that is like right. the bringing like it's in psychoanalysis. We do an uplifting moment and this is where it, we bring ourselves back and we say, okay, we're okay. We went to the brink of this. We went as far as we could go 
And because you don't, the, the catharsis doesn't mean anything if you're not actually shedding anything, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like if you don't go anywhere, if you don't go through a tunnel, you're not coming out the other side of anything. You're just walking in a sunlit road, you know, and you're not, that's not how you grow. And so that's that it's worth it to me to go through all of this and to watch everything that makes me feel uncomfortable and to, in some ways like relive and trigger things because I get this closure at the end, you know, and, and the scene that really kind of breaks me, um, open is when she's in the courtroom and she sees uh, Joubert, I believe, and he turns around and then it's her father and, yeah. and then it's Gerald and it's like, ah, and then she says, you are so much smaller than I remember. And that is what happens when you stop living in that darkness and when you talk about these things in the light. And I think like the image of the sun as she's walking down the street I you could read it a little cheesy, but I just love it. It's like she has finally found this and that it's 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 more attainable than she thought it was, you know. Yeah. Allegorically, I definitely vibe with that and hit it. Perhaps decision wise, stylistically, maybe it didn't hit me as hard as it could have, but mm-hmm. I got what they were putting down. I was really into that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm right there with you when it comes to the fact that you can't really have a cathartic moment unless you go into that well yourself mm-hmm. and this movie's kind of giving you a guidebook on how to do that because we're watching somebody go through something way damn worse than you're probably having to go through on your couch right now mm-hmm. and so if you could just do that with one thing while you're watching the film if there's one thing that you're like oh, i know that feeling mm-hmm. then they're like join us you know yeah. and i feel that that's what flanagan does in all of his movies he's like mm-hmm. this is what i was feeling when i wrote this and i would like you to walk with me and feel it too yeah and he gets knocked for that but i love it like that's part of why i really connect to him because i feel like he doesn't rip my heart out and then leave me hanging very often no yeah. i mean you could say oculus maybe that Oof. ending is is that's a, a brutal ending yeah but even then, there's just some something about the wash of his cinematic eye that mm-hmm. feels warm, you know? That is an interesting observation. I, I like that you brought that up. Thank you. Because mm. for a podcast about aesthetics, you usually talk about the visual. We started on it. You're like, oh, I don't really mm-hmm. think individuals. Uh, if you were to consider the contrast of the feeling that we get when watching his films, and I do agree that there's a warmth to them, his color palette is so Angly cold. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like you're always in the bottom of a ship. Yes. I feel he's got those aquatic greens a lot, the the blues, shadowy colors. Uh this movie I felt had it a lot, except for the sunny scenes, of course. This mm-hmm. there's a lot of warmth in this movie. So this is the second time I've talked about Flanagan on the podcast as well, because Dr. Sleep was already spoken about as well. Mm-hmm. Very similar conversation as well (laughs) Uh, in another movie that I feel there's a lot of warmth and heart and soul in it. And yet it is so bleakly dark and cold Mm -hmm. in just about every way. So I just thought that was very interesting to bring up that that we see the we feel the warmth, 
despite the images telling us otherwise. Yeah. And see, because I don't read it as cold. I think I read it as cool and soothing, you know, like it reminds me of water in a lot of ways. And um, when I was teaching, I read somewhere that like even a picture of the ocean or sound of the ocean is soothing, even if you're not actually there. And so I would like have Mm. play wave sounds in my classroom sometimes. And so I think I read it because there's a lot of blue in it and it feels, it feels cool and calm to me i could totally understand especially with dr sleep how it could read as cold how someone else would experience that as cold and bleak and i do think that there is an element of that like when she is in the darkness and the shadows like it is the point of that i feel like is that she has nothing else and that she is completely alone i also think like mike flanagan has um He's got a bit of a type, you know, in his actresses. <laughs> he yeah, tends he to cast, yeah. Like the same person over and over again? Yeah. Right, right, yeah. And, and a lot of times they are, uh, they have dark brown hair and blue eyes. Mm-hmm. And I have dark brown hair and blue eyes. And so a lot of times I watch this and I kind ah. of see myself, you know, and I realize that's a highly specific way to read this, but there's like a calming, like it's easy for me to see myself in Jesse because I mean, they're in a lot of ways, like we look similar, you know, and I think about that with hush also. And, and that's, you know, I said, it's highly specific to me because most people are not going to have that same kind of um, feeling, but there's, there's like a cleanness to his cinematic eye too, that I find calming, you know? Oh yeah. The cleanness to it, I think is, it's something that makes it very cinematic, mm-hmm. but it's his eye for the little details that bring in that realism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, say you have like this wonderfully clean shot of Jesse on the bed, just one of the moments where she wakes up, but her wrists are purple, her fingernails mm-hmm. are dirty, her makeup is just gone. It's been wiped off somehow <laughs> just mm-hmm. through sleeping alone and, and just de- being dehydrated. Mm-hmm. So all those little details it's like yeah you're the most human i've ever seen a human be in a movie and yet this movie has like that kind of 2020s 2010s filter on it mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's super crisp so yeah. i agree with you there that there's something about it yeah yeah and i mean i agree there's I don't know. There's an element of whiteness, I think, to his movies also, and like a certain socioeconomic status that mm-hmm. feels safe in a lot of ways that a movie like Fair. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not going to have, like, or that a grimier movie doesn't have. So I think it's a little easier for me to connect to the emotional core because I'm not stressed by the visuals I see on screen like it doesn't the the actual setting doesn't trigger me in a way that like a grimier movie like the ring is horrifying to me because I feel dirty as I watch it the entire way through there's just a grimy quality to it that I think is part of why it's so effective and part of why I really enjoy it but it makes me uncomfortable and I think Mike Flanagan's like the way he films and the setting and like his set design does not have that. So it's, it's almost an easier entryway for me into the story. If that makes sense. I think it's also a gateway into what makes his film so impactful too, because he disarms you every single movie. There's always <laughs> yeah. this wholesome beginning. I mean, this movie alone has like the most cheerful music it starts with. And then they almost mm-hmm. hit the dog. It wasn't until they almost hit the dog. that you are like, all right, this is one of those movies. Right. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it could have just been a drama about a couple in a cabin who are going through their 
you know, relationship and, and their different, you know, traumas and grief. And that would have been a wonderful movie to watch. Mm-hmm. But I find those the best horror movies. It's very Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. I'm going to set up a film that you want to watch and it's going to drift mm-hmm. at some point. And then you're going to get a movie you didn't even expect to have, but you're going to love it too. Mm-hmm. And that's what King does that so well. Like one of, we just talked about Billy Summers, which is his newest book. And mm-hmm. it's like really reminiscent of 112263 in a lot of ways. And I feel like King sets his characters in situations and then just lets them be themselves and kind of writes them as they are. And that's where the humanity comes out. Um, because like in Billy Summers, like I had no clue what to expect going in and he is a hitman on his last job. And that's like the elevator pitch. And then but the humanity in that story is what makes it really meaningful, which I think is what Gerald's game is. Like, um, like you said, like a movie about just being handcuffed to a bed could go in a billion different directions. But what he, what King allows it to be just by letting Jesse be who she is and following the logical thread of what would happen, I think is what makes it really impactful. And I think Flanagan understands that about King. I think a lot of times when King mm-hmm. adaptations are not successful, it's because the director or the, um, the, well, yeah, anyone making the movie doesn't quite understand the heart of what King is doing with the story. And I think Frank Darabont yeah. understands that. And I think Mike Flanagan really does too. Yeah. I, I also think that Flanagan's benefit is he's proven himself in other properties. I mean, when you get something like a Ouija sequel, and you make it just very entertaining. Uh-huh. People are like genuinely into this movie and it's very scary. It's really you good. Kind of, <laughs> it's such a flex on his part to go like, mm-hmm. you can give me anything, it's going to be good. Yeah. And because of that, I think when he signed up with Netflix and when he signs up with all these uh, pro- you know, these other studios that have Stephen King properties and they let him do it, they just go, make a movie. Here yep. it is. Here's a movie. You get King. Go for it. We know you like it, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you don't get all that stupid studio involvement that stuff like, you know, Children of the Corn got, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get more of what is actually in the page with King mm-hmm. as opposed to what was on the cover of the book. Right. Exactly. Or just like the elevator pitch, you know, like, oh, a car yeah. is evil. You know, it's like that's that's really not what that story is about. And that's the thing oh. that I when I talk about King so much, like. I laugh because like I forget there's a clown in it sometimes because what that story (laughs) is to me is like about the friendship, you know, it's like there's always something underneath the surface and that that is what makes the story so memorable and what I think makes him such a an enduring author, you know, totally agree. It makes me come back like I've read Gerald's game probably five times, you know, wow. Yeah, I mean, I've read my fair share of the classics of King, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the stereotypical go-tos, you know, in high school, I read a few of them as well. I was like, you know, Carrie, Christine, I have, mm-hmm. I've touched on it. I just haven't had the oh, time to good. sit down with that epic, but I, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the Moonlight Man. Mr. Moonlight. <laughs> yeah, he's the space cowboy in the book. Okay, that is wildly different (laughs) i know yeah different songs different kind of connotations he functions basically the same in the book but see the moonlight man has that more boogeyman kind of weird i like space cowboy a lot more if i'm honest yeah what i love about stephen king is he will take something like a song and just like this song has always made me uncomfortable and therefore it is the harbinger of doom Uh uh-huh yeah i love it 
Oh yeah, he'll drop a fifty song lyric in, you know. <laughs> yeah, <he> yeah. Will. <laughs> like <laughs> on the story, the raft. Like the, this one character is constantly singing the song, and it's weird because I've never heard that song, and so I just have this weird version of it in my head from reading it. But yeah, so he he is the space cowboy, um, and and I like Mister Moonlight because I think it fits with the aesthetic of the movie. Like I don't think uh-huh. I don't know if I prefer one or the other. I just always think of him as the space cowboy because I've. I read it first and that kind of goes into kind of what I wanted to talk about with the shadows and the darkness because those scenes are so dark Yeah, to the point where it's hard to see what's on screen. And I think that's intentional. Like I always think about that game of Thrones episode where everybody got so mad because it was so darkly lit and you couldn't tell (laughs) what was happening. And I mean, I feel like that's maybe some valid criticism there, but here I feel like it's intentional. Like you're not supposed to know if he's real, you know, you're not supposed Mm -hmm. to know if he's really standing there. And that's why it's so like, even if you can see him, you're still not supposed to know if he's real. Um, That's when I think about the allegory of that, like that's, the way I've kind of understood a lot of trauma and like past memories that to, you know, to bring it back to the well that kind of live at the bottom of the well is like, I think that might have happened, but I'm not sure. And I don't know if I'm quite ready to look at that thing yet, but I know it's there and it's like looming. And it's so like part of what my therapy has been is bringing those things into the light and looking at them and saying, like, I think Mm -hmm. about it as, as like books, you know, I like, Step one is knowing the shelf exists. Step two is knowing that there are books on it. Step three is knowing what the titles of the books are. And I feel like that is when he starts to step forward. It's like, are are you there? Is, is yeah. this something that's really happening? Because for a long time, you can tell yourself it's not, you know? Yeah. And this is something I think people who can relate to on the, the level that we're talking about when it comes to your memories and trauma and feelings it's also something I think visually people will respond to as well. You know, Hereditary did a great job with it too, with seeing Charlie in the chair in, mm-hmm. in Peter's bedroom. And mm-hmm. then it's just his stuff, you know, like her yeah. head is the ba- basketball. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all had those moments where you just see a shape and you're just like, I'm not going to move just in case it is what I think it is. Mm-hmm. And I loved that he combined that with a more emotional element because mm-hmm. it just fits Jesse's situation so much more, <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. It, it adds stakes to it because you don't know then, okay, if she's been seeing Gerald and she's been seeing herself and she's been seeing her father. What is this mm-hmm. that she's seeing right now? And that's the scary part of our psyches. This this is part of you, really, a mm-hmm. part of yourself that you have not accounted for. And if you do account for it, you... you your brain probably makes you forget about it the moment you've ever thought of it because it's too dangerous for you at that moment to really explore it. Totally. I, I can see maybe the only reason why people might criticize the ending, I suppose, is the fact that there is a literal you know, killer out there that he is and she actually gets to meet him mm-hmm. and go and then walk away. It's cool. I love it allegorically, but at the same time, there is a part of me that's like, most people don't get that. And I kind of get comfort in the feeling of that thing lurking around mm-hmm. and you just having to deal with it while you basically you come to terms with something that was devastating for you, but this thing's still there and it may mm-hmm. not have the highest of stakes, but for some reason you can't come to terms with it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and this is a, a big topic of conversation on the Losers Club and amongst the losers is what do 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 they want Mr. Moonlight to be real? I mm -hmm. don't really have strong feelings about it one way or another, except that if he's not real, we don't get that courtroom moment of catharsis scene that is True. really meaningful for me personally. Fair. And so I enjoy seeing it, but I get in the larger context of the movie like i completely understand why somebody who doesn't have that personal response to that scene would prefer it being a looming threat you know and that it never mm -hmm. quite goes away i think it's interesting that after she kind of has the moment after she um frees her hand or kind of has the moment where she remembers the eclipse memory his eyes become the eclipse you know and i don't yeah. think that they were before and so it's no. like he is kind of a manifestation of this trauma for her and there's a conversation that she has with gerald where it's like is is he death is this what people see before they die yeah. and it's just like is this so powerful that it's going to kill me and that's something that i've talked about a lot in therapy is like is if I open this door, will I ever be able to close it? Or is it going to overwhelm me and I, I will right. never be able to escape? And so I feel like he is just such a looming, lurking feeling of dread. And then she has this, she recovers this memory and it refines what he means to her, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I like the fact that she can vanquish that by having this like moment of, no, you're just a real person. I, you know, I can overcome you, but... I also like that, like if, like one of uh, the converse, the consistency of most of the losers of the losers club is that they would prefer that he they just never find him and they never find her ring. So, see, I am a, I'm still of two minds of it just because I like what I just said. I I am more into that as a horror thing. That's just mm -hmm. my jam. But maybe I'm still not coming you know i'm probably running away from something myself in life that i just love torturing myself with the feeling all the time mm -hmm. uh, you know so I'm like oh loom yeah bring the shadows and scare the hell out of me right. but i totally agree with you that there is something really uplifting about the moment it's mm -hmm. like labyrinth you know it's like the moment where she says you have no power over me mm -hmm. the moment you realize like this is my world right there's nothing you can do mm -hmm. and i appreciate it for that I can see why that is so important for people. And I actually really have to give Flanagan a lot of credit on this. Is it the same way in the book? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, then. Yeah, so King it's, well. it's King's ending. Yeah. Yeah. So then kudos to Stephen King, especially Stephen King then, for writing an ending to a book that lets you go, oh, I'm happy for her. Uh-huh. You do not get this from Stephen King very often. Yes, yes. You know, mm -hmm. usually it's one more monster walks into the room. <laughs> right, right. Or like you have, and I think kudos to Flanagan too for actually ending the book in this way because, you know, it could have been the missed ending, which I don't want to spoil, but <sighs> yeah. Frank Darabont's ending is very different than Stephen King's ending and it's much right. bleaker and I just pretend the movie stops before it happens. Um, but that's a whole <laughs> other story. But um and I think like Flanagan, I'm sure he probably knew he was people were going to say it was too schmaltzy, but I feel like he is he, he I mean, he's got a little bit of the schmaltz. I feel like he kind of loves his characters in the same way Stephen King loves them yeah. and just doesn't like to see bad things happen to him. But, you know, and I think part of the the, the beauty of horror and the horror genre and us kind of talking about this is there is no better ending. There is no right answer. Mm -hmm. There is no right or wrong it's what we connect with and you know there are there's part of me that connects with the looming threat that is unresolved you know and some days that's what i want and i think 
I wish that as a discoursing community, we kind of w- had more understanding of like a lot of those things can be true at the same time, you know? Yes. Preach. I can, (laughs) like, I can really love this ending and also still kind of wish it ended in this way, but be really glad that it, you know, and it's okay. It's just how we are personally connecting. Like, like, I keep wanting to ask you if you liked this movie, you know, and (laughs) and I do want to know, but I also think like, it doesn't like you, whether you like this movie or not doesn't affect what I get from it, you know? Of course. Because we can have this conversation about it, and I am loving this conversation, you know? Yes, and I like these conversations as well. This is uh, one of the foundations of the podcast is to express the differences as well between personal tastes and other observations about Mm -hmm. the film. Because everything that you've brought to the fore, I totally connect with. Whether I liked it or not, I like it. I don't... For... A lot of just stylistic things, I suppose. I, I as as a genre, a survivalist film or story doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. So I find my brain kind of wander at moments. And I had it with this movie too, like when it because I've I guess I've seen enough of them. Mm-hmm. So like, and I've, I mean, you're from the south. Yep. <laughs> I'm from the south. <laughs> you learn survivalist skills really early on, and yes, so for me, <laughs> I, I'm just watching privileged white people, and I'm just sitting here like your door's open, and there's a wild dog outside. Mm-hmm. You didn't charge your phone. Okay, okay. Finally, you cut your hand out. You're gonna do your thing. This is all great. What are you doing? No, mm-hmm. no not the not the maxi pads. No, charge the phone. Get a towel. Mm-hmm. Call somebody and don't get in the car and drive away. Also, close the door and get the dog out of there. There are right. so many things that were bothering me, but that's the uh-huh. kind of stress that just gets to me. And I, I just have a, a my relationship with these sorts of stories tends to make me err a little bit more on the okay, yeah. Every time they went into her psyche and did all of the dream stuff and going back to the past, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I, I just got right back into it. So I love parts of the film, the totality of it wasn't the strongest Flanagan film for me, mm-hmm. but all the things that you've mentioned that are impactful, totally agree with. Yeah. I also, there's one other thing about the ending with the the Moonlight Man that I have to, have to point out. This is a personal thing that I just was really, really happy. It tied up one of the loosest ends of the whole film because I for sure was the person who caught at the beginning of the film that somebody has been grave robbing nearby mm-hmm. on the radio. And I'm like, you privileged people. Why are you not listening to the news? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Your door's open and there's somebody out there doing this stuff. I didn't and it didn't really this. click with me until they caught him. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, it was his dog. Oh my God. It's his dog. That's why mm-hmm. it has a collar on it. Oh my goodness. It That scares me more than anything else because mm-hmm. I just have, that's the kind of area I grew up in. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I grew up pretty close to areas like that. Um, mm. That's it's so funny because the way I experienced that, it's just I didn't catch that in the radio. Um, didn't think about the collar of the dog, and it, and again, it's like just it's fascinating to me to, to for us both to have watched the same film and to yeah. have like wildly different kind of emotional responses, and and I think that just kind of speaks to like like meeting the film where we are, you know, and kind of having, because like we said, like there is no right or wrong way to experience it. I tend to really be willing to overlook a lot of things, like to a point where it bugs people sometimes. (laughs) It's just like, but that doesn't make sense. And like, yeah, but I, but I cried. So I'm okay with it, you know? For sure. I'm the same way with plenty of movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, 
it's fascinating to me um, because I know I, I this is my favorite King adaptation and I realize that I am in the minority on that. And it, a lot of it is just because it just like really speaks to me, you know, and it, it grabs my heart and makes me like feel things that I don't want to feel a lot of times. And then it pats me on the back and says, okay, you'll be okay. You know, and I just, <laughs> I love that, you know. But I understand other people not having that personal connection to it, thinking, seeing more of the flaws or seeing more of the the moving parts, you know? Yeah, I saw a lot of moving parts. And I like I said, if I didn't have this just personal thing of like, oh, it's going to be somebody strapped to a thing. Some like those just like even Saw, the original Saw makes me maybe it just makes me anxious to a degree. Uh-huh. I just don't want to deal with it. So I'm just like, do Saw. something else. Yeah. I, oh, no, I love it. I love it. But it uh-huh. makes me uncomfortable. That's mm-hmm. more my thing. So and I think I just knew going in, I'm going to be very uncomfortable with the fact that she's not getting out of this bed and I would not know what to do either, you mm-hmm. know, and having been exposed to a lot of these stories growing up in high school and stuff, too, if that element had been slightly different, which it wouldn't be and it shouldn't be, you know, but mm-hmm. if it had been a different setup for a similar sort of exploration of the character, I probably would have responded a little differently. But those explorations Oh, they hit like a Mack truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, that whole conversation with the dad, I was just like holding oh. tears. I never got to the the the, the t- super cry point, but <laughs> I, I was also in the analytical mode for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I think that saved me a little bit because I've had those conversations with adults as a child as well. And then mm-hmm. it's not until you're much older that you're like, there's nothing wrong with me. Sorry. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. The part where she's talking to, and this is the, the, like the reparenting thing that I was talking about is like when she's talking to her younger Jesse and she's saying like, that wasn't my job. My job is, my job was to be a kid. Like that is something that yeah. I have said in therapy. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I see this. I see it. And it's, it's encapsulated in this beautiful image that I can hold on to and I can pull up in my brain and I can pull up on my phone and like, I see it and it takes me back to that moment of saying that and saying, that's okay to say this, you know? Yeah. And to any naysayers about the ending or any of the, as you put it, the smalls of the film, oh, yeah. I, I love that that's what this film is, that we have a film that fits that mold. We need yeah. every mold to have something so everybody can have their moment. So I think it's beautiful that somebody could connect to it the way you have mm-hmm. and that everybody has a film they connect with this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this feeling of hope at the end of it is needed. Mm-hmm. We don't always need to have that dour ending. I like it, but I also like a hopeful ending. So yeah, I like what we got. It's it's you know. Yeah, yeah, and it, it reminds me of because when you were on uh, psychoanalysis, like we talked about the witch, which is very <laughs> much like that. Talk about bleak and talk about a not hopeful ending. Although I guess that is up to interpretation yeah yeah um (laughs) but it's just so fun it's you know yeah anybody who doesn't like this like i completely understand and that's that's 100 percent fine and i want to talk to you about it and understand Mm -hmm. what it is you don't like about it because i feel like and a lot of times like the, the older i get the more i realize like i have a couple of favorite movies that just have my heart but Picking a favorite is so dependent on my mood and dependent on my present experience. Same. And like, that's why I don't think there is a best movie. I don't think there is a, 
I think Terminator 2 is a perfect movie. But um, <laughs> but I mean, other than that, like, it's just it, we're going to change and we're going to have shifting feelings about things. And I want to know what it is that people don't want about a hopeful ending someday, because sometimes I want a, a movie that's the witch that is really going to ring me out, yeah. you know, or hereditary, which is a movie that I also exactly. love. But it and then some days I want one that's going to lift me up. And it's just what we approach art for, you know. We also have films that just make us laugh. We have others, and all within the same genre, others that make mm-hmm. us just doubt reality, yeah, others that just terrify us. I, you yeah. Know, and within Flanagan, too, there are properties like uh, Ouija Origin of Evil and Oculus that are just meant to terrify you. Mm-hmm. And he does a great job with it. Oh, he, yeah. He always has his personal touch to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, were there any other points that were really something you wanted to talk about in regards to Gerald's game before we round up? I think we have, I think I hit everything. I made a, yeah, yeah. I've gotten everything I wanted to say. I made a list. And at some point when I take notes on a movie and I really love the movie, I end up just writing down every single thing that's happening and that people are saying. Uh (laughs) So that's, that's kind of where I got towards the end of it. But yeah, I think we've, we've talked about. Well, hopefully there's another article in the making then, because that's how it goes with me. He's like, oh, new observation. Well, that one's being written down. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, and I wrote something about this because this is another movie that I wrote a letter to the Stephen King podcast about or the Stephen King cast about um, years and years ago. And I ended up kind of turning it into a blog entry. And that blog is not um, available anymore. But now that I have the Strong Female Antagonist blog, I'm needing to get it back up. So maybe I shall do that soon because I... You know, a lot of what I talked to, like my personal connection, it was a way of working through that. You know, that's what Mm -hmm. that blog entry was. So, yeah. Totally relate to that with my own work. Well, then I think we can wrap up. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic and fun podcasts, including White Ladies in Crisis, hosted by Jen Adams. That's me. (laughs) Yay. Anatomy of a Scream's own Joe Lipset and Gina Radcliffe. 28 Days Lady-er, hosted by (laughs) Sophie and Hannah Day, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, shockaholic.org. So... Dear listeners, what are your thoughts on Gerald's game? I'd love to hear your thoughts either on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod, via email at beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com, or in our newly formed community space on Discord. Be sure to check the Twitter page for the link to the server. It's completely free to join, so we would love to see you there. I also have a very special announcement, so Jen, you're the first person to even hear about this. (laughs) A special announcement to make is, as today of the release of this recording is Friday the 13th, (gasps) and this is the 13th episode. Oh my gosh. I wanted to do something really special for this, and I want to celebrate the growth of the show. So... As of today, the beauty of horror is taking advantage of the new tier membership features on Coffee, Ko-Fi, however you want to pronounce that. <laughs> this is a service that is much like Patreon, but every cent spent goes directly to the channel instead of a high percentage going to the middleman. Uh, it's a new ser- uh, way they're doing their services. So mm-hmm. this show will stay completely free for all listeners. What you get through all membership tiers is access to an additional monthly podcast entitled 
The Good, The Agreeable, and The Beautiful, <gasps> in which I will review a horror film with a ranking system based on three of Immanuel Kant's core judgments of tastes. Good, agreeable, and beautiful. To kind of differentiate between those three and teach a little bit better about how film discourse is more complicated than just saying it's just good Mm -hmm. when you mean something else. Love that. You will also receive tier exclusive roles on Discord, a private section to talk with fellow backers, monthly Ask Me Anythings, the ability to choose which film I'll review, and way more depending on the tier level that you choose. So please be sure to check out coffee or ko-fi that's ko-fi.com slash beauty horror pod for full details on the various options i'm super excited to offer this membership subscription and i cannot wait to get the content out to those who are eager to have it that's so exciting Uh, congratulations thank you i cannot wait to do this Uh, i figured once a month i can add something to it and Mm -hmm. yeah it'll be a great way to support the podcast while also doing something that i think is pretty valuable for people if they want to have it Mm -hmm. i agree and thank you so much again, Jen, for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, oh, I just love this conversation and I love the opportunity to share a moment with you about a film that means so much to you. Do you have anything you want to plug right now? Where can the people find you? What's going on in the world of Jen Adams? Yeah, well, a lot of stuff. We, um, You mentioned the White Ladies in Crisis podcast and that is continuing. Yay! Um, not just because Physical got a second season, although I would like to claim credit <laughs> for that, um, but we're going to be talking about some films and it is, I, I don't know if we're announcing yet, but it's going to get wild and that's all oh, yeah. I will say there. And you can also find me on the Losers Club podcast. So if you like to hear me talk about Stephen King, there is just <laughs> hours and hours of that um, on the Losers Club podcast. Um, I just finished reviewing Chapel Weight, which is an ad- a new adaptation, and Billy Summer. So lots of those things are coming to the feed. And um, the Psychoanalysis podcast, where uh, we talked about Chandler was a guest for a Comfort Horror episode on The Witch, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. episodes because I love that movie and oh, because you're awesome and we are just wrapping up parents um movie actually if this is dropping on the 13th we are smack in the middle of a topic that i cannot specifically name yet because we haven't decided exactly what it's going to be but let's just say (laughs) we are going to be watching assassination nation and i'm so excited that i think that i might explode so be on the lookout (laughs) for that because i love that movie as well um so yeah lots of fun stuff um we've got comfort horror episodes coming up and just lots lots of really cool fun fun, deep feelings talk. So, so yeah, that's me. Oh, and you can find me at Jim Ferratu on social places. Yes, please be sure to follow her on the socials because Jen is all over the place with all kinds of projects and you never know where her <laughs> name's going to pop up on some sort of featuring list. And it's always exciting. So please follow what she's doing. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the world. Squad.